You're listening to an episode from Tales from the First Tee. I'm your host, Rich Easton, telling tales from beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. If this is your first time listening, welcome. I hope you stay until the end. If you're returning, welcome back. We've bobbed and weaved our way through and hopefully out of a two-year pandemic. And hopefully not stepping out of the pandemic and then stepping into a third world war. It's possible. It's possible if cool heads don't prevail. It's possible if countries just keep talking and don't actually assert leverage, worldwide leverage, financial leverage, offering Zelensky fuel instead of just a ride. I mean, it's easier said than done. Each country has to look at what's the potential blowback for getting involved, and then they have to look at what's the blowback for not getting involved. I think that's the question. Anytime a country is in isolationism, that's, that's the question they have to keep asking themselves. And most of the time, they get it wrong. Most of the time, countries act too late. I struggled with even doing a podcast this week in deference to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I'm not a journalist or a network anchor. This is their time for those professionals to rise up and start reporting the effects of the Russian army on Ukrainian families, as well as talking to leaders with solutions to mitigate or reverse the damage. I don't care to listen to sound bites of an ex-president complimenting acts of unprovoked violence. That's just political grandstanding. What we need is continuous live reporting inside Ukraine to show the world this is what it could look like in your country, city, or village if your interest and Russian interests are the same. Yeah, so I struggled with the thought of talking about golf or anything else that crossed my path this week while a war's going on. But a good friend of mine said to me, you know, people don't want to listen to news about Ukraine 24-7, particularly if you don't live in Ukraine. So as I thought about it, I happened to have just turned on the TV and noticed that man, I got a shitload of channels, as do many of us, plus streaming services. And what I noticed is that 99% of them were not about the war. So I reconsidered my strategy and my tactics this week and decided... I'll let the experts do what they do best. And this week, I'll talk about two different golf stories. Is golf a sport, a skill, or just an addiction? A friend of mine once told me that any sport that tolerates or encourages drinking while in the act of competing is not a sport. It's just a test of skills under the influence. But I would argue against that point. Most amateur sports are complemented and some even supplemented with behavior and mood altering substances. That doesn't reclassify it from sports to a skill. I would suggest that golf requires skills to improve performance. The more you hone your skills, 
the greater the likelihood your performance improves. It doesn't guarantee it, but the greater the likelihood. The fact that you're not running, throwing, catching, punching, or kicking doesn't reclassify it. Not only is it a sport, it is addicting as all get out. I've always tinkered with my equipment, particularly in the off season or temporary cold front. Then you just have too much time to think about, you know, hey, what are the new clubs that are coming out this year? And then you start seeing certain pros playing with them. And you're like, you know, God, last year my, my handicap was probably higher than I wanted it to be. Probably not flushing my irons. I need a new set of irons. Or my buddies are out driving me. I got to get a new, better driver. Tinkering with golf stuff is time-consuming, expensive, and only solves the day's problem. Rarely solves the overall long-term problem of why you can't stripe every drive down the center, flush every iron, iron to a target on the green, and then stroke every putt on that perfect line that goes right to the cup. And the answer usually is, buy the newest driver on the market. The irons that the top-earning pros are using or the putter that seems to work flawlessly when you try it on the practice green at any golf shop. I mean, I have been to so many golf shops, as have many of my buddies, where they have this practice green. And it's like a pool table. There might be some can to it, but it's basically flat and fast like a pool table. And as you start taking out different putters, some just tend to help you get it to the hole more consistently. I remember going to this one golf shop and they actually had a reward for anybody that could make three putts in a row from a certain distance would get 20% off of any putter. And I told the guys, well, if you guys are willing to discount it by 20%, why should it matter whether I make my putts or not? Just here, give me the 20% discount. I'll buy a putter. Isn't that why you want me here? But those guys were hard-nosed and they're like, no, you have to play our game. And I'm like, fuck you. And I left and I didn't play their game and I ended up buying the putter somewhere else. Did I get the discount? No. So I shouldn't have left anyway. But back to this, you go to some of these practice facilities and now you try out this putter and it's working and it's like, this is it. This is going to change my game. I've actually had thoughts of matches that I've been in with guys where I missed a putt and I'm thinking if I had this putter and I was putting this way, I would have made that putt and maybe three or four other putts that I missed. This is the putter that's going to change the day. And then you buy that new putter, and man, they're getting expensive now. They're getting into the two, three, four hundred dollar range, which is like driver territory. <laughs> you probably use it more than your driver anyway. Of course you do. But yet you're not willing to spend that money. So then I get the putter out after I was just miraculously sinking all these putts at the practice uh, you know, facility. And I get out. And now I'm on real greens that have real cant, that have grain, that have undulation. And I am no better than I was before with my other putter. It really just depends on how I'm feeling that day. And every once in a while, if I go to the practice green with real grass, not a pool table, and practice long enough, that day or the next day, I could have a good round. 
but it's not guaranteed. But most people feel like equipment is going to solve the problem. It's the answer. I've got a buddy that I play with, a Wisconsin slammer, who, like me, is addicted not only to the sport, but to the fact that there is going to be better equipment out there that's going to make our games better. This guy is like a one handicap. He's on the verge of going scratch and he's looking for improvement clubs. So I think it bites all of us. There's just something appealing about how golf equipment companies market their new stuff. Every golfer wants that well-struck shot. And when you see the way they market it, it's like, yeah, I can do that. You know, you just think about technology now and how technology has improved equipment, certainly golf balls, but it's improved equipment so that you could hit it as far, if not farther, when you're not hitting it in the center of the club. And I think a lot of us believe the same thing. With new technology comes better precision. With better precision, they have to be developing clubs that are going to make that ball go farther, spin back more, and do all of the things that old technology couldn't do. We have to believe that because certainly we're not the problem. Although I'll tell you, I went in for a fitting two weeks ago and I happened to go to this one place. All I think is the best place in Charleston. And I've got a buddy of mine that I see at Charleston National all the time. Probably one of the greatest fitters of all time. His name's Alan. And I know the guy. He's got a great sense of humor. He knows I have a great sense of humor. So he knows how to talk to me. And I was working with him for no less than two hours. I go in because I've got the itch. January was the coldest freaking month in Charleston that I could remember other than the great snow four years ago. It's cold. So when it's cold and you don't want to play, which I don't, you tend to start dreaming about new equipment and you get hungry, like I said. So I'm in there, I'm doing a fitting. I finally get the time. And I really like these TaylorMade P790s. And what's cool about where he works at a place called David Ayers is uh, they will let you take out. And sometimes it becomes a rental depending on how long you have it. But they'll let you demo uh, different drivers that they have, Woods and a seven iron from different sets that the manufacturers get give them. It's really interesting with drivers in today's environment. Most drivers have this um, this tool where you could take out the shaft and then twist it, and then depending on how you put it back in, will give you different degrees of loft. It I still can't figure out how it's done as I look at it, but trust me, that's what it does for drivers for some fairway woods. When you take an iron out, they will uh, set up different shafts and they will screw in those shafts and do something similar. But that's not how you buy the irons. When you figure out what shaft you want that matches whatever your numbers are in the swing base, once you order it, when it comes to you, it, it does not have the same locking system as the drivers do, which I find very interesting. Probably makes it easier for the community to be able to test things, and it's probably that much better when you get that set because it doesn't have that, that adjustment down at the bottom. So anyway, I'm in with Alan, and I'm in for two hours, and another friend of ours, Steve, is there. He's training Steve, and 
the longer I'm hitting, the worse I'm getting. And so it's like, it's hard to test a, a club or irons when your body starts giving up. I must have hit 250 balls over two hours. I am hitting and hitting. Every once in a, in a while, I'm getting a perfect number. But Alan kept trying different clubs, different shafts, different clubs, different shafts. And I had my set of clubs there also, which he fitted me for five years ago. At the end of the day, I could hardly, you know, pick up my club anymore. He just looks at me and he gave me, he goes, listen, before I sell you a set of clubs, I think there are three things that you're doing with your hands and your body that if you change that, your swing would be better. You'd be scoring better before you bought the next set of clubs. I'm like, okay. So he gave me three hints. And I tried them in the bay and every once in a while I'd hit it perfectly and my numbers would be like 20% better than my average was. So he's right. And so I'm like, okay, okay, this is it. And I'm like, what about these uh, TaylorMade P790s that I really like? The seven iron, I was crushing it out there. He goes, I'll tell you what, why don't you practice what I just told you and come back in, we'll refit you when you need to. But right now, there's not a club out there that is going to improve your game until you improve your swing. Yeah, I think he was trying to say something in two words. You suck! I mean, have you ever gone to a retail shop and they, they're not selling you something? They're actually selling you against buying something there? You know why they do that? They're playing the long game. And that strategy comes from the top down. They know I'm loyal to them and I'll talk about them on my podcast and I'll come back in and I'm going to try and make these corrections. I was out the other day playing golf with Cloudy Graves and I had explained to Cloudy the lesson that I had that it was supposed to be a fitting. It turned into a lesson and some of my shots were okay, but the last three holes, I was just thinking about it too much and I was hitting horrible shots. Now, a lot of times when you get lessons, it's hard to take them out on the course the next day. Most of the time, if you do that and you're not spending days at the range, you're going to get worse. Too many, you're thinking about too many things. So the last three holes, I was just messing up horribly. I think I bogeyed and double bogeyed like seven, eight, nine. So we get to 10 and I'm telling them the story and I'm like, that's it. I'm going back to the way things are. And then both of us at the same time recited the line from Major League. Look, I go to you. I stick up for you. You know, help me now. I said, fuck you, Jobu. I do it myself. Yeah, so golf lessons are not easy to translate into a game right away. It takes a lot of time. And so I'm out there the other day practicing, and I run into one of my colleagues who works at the golf course. And I kind of explained to him what I was working on, some of my challenges, because I had hit a few good shots, but then followed by a few bad shots. And I'm trying to talk to him about the way I take my club back and the fact that it's not in the pocket and I'm you know, moving my hands inside, all that crap. And he proceeds to tell me this story about this old pro that he knew up north. And the fact that he's telling me it's an old pro and he knew the guy. I was waiting for some sage advice, which by the way, I got and it worked. And he's like, here's what the guy told me. 
It's hard to think about the length of your club and where the face of your club head is all the way through your swing. It's just too far from your body. I mean, some people are good at knowing where certain things are in space. Most people know where their hands are, right? He said, so this guy told him, all you've got to think about is where you want that grip to go back in your backswing and where you want it to come through and where you want it to finish. The 12 inches of grip is a lot easier to imagine in your hands because your hands are on it. And to feel where that is, then where this club face, which could be 50 inches away from your hands, it's much easier to know where this the grip is. So I started taking some swings just thinking about the grip. And I was hitting some flush irons and some really good fairway woods. So I can't wait to try it out. But the bottom line is, this is a sport that takes a tremendous amount of skill. Because people are so different, each golfer has to determine what's the best way to hone those skills. Is it to practice? Is it to take lessons? Is it just to play more? Or is it just to drink as much freaking beer and shots of your favorite moonshine and bourbon just to get out of your head so you could swing away? Some of those could be true. All of those can be true. But one thing, golf is a sport. And I am hopelessly addicted to it because every once in a while I hit the shot of my life. Now all I have to do is hit the rest of them the same way. Do you ever root for your ball to find a bunker? I bet you do. Many golfers, I'm sure not you who are listening, silently wish their competitors' balls find their way into bunkers. I've actually met and played with people who root against their competitors out loud so everybody can hear it. I think hitting out of the sand is a lot harder than hitting off the fairway or the fringe around the green. That's just my experience. So most of the time, when I hit a shot offline, I'm verbally trying to talk my ball away from the bunker. For me, most of my total scores are lower the less I land the ball in the sand. And I'm certain that most amateurs feel the same way. They might not say it out loud, but they certainly feel it. But there are in my mind, two notable exceptions where I'm actually coaching my ball to find a bunker. Number one, the rough around the bunker is so deep that, first of all, you have a hard time finding it. And then second of all, it's almost impossible to hit it. In my experience, fairway bunker shots are a lot easier to hit than trying to find your ball in heavy rough and then get it back in the fairway. So whenever my ball's heading towards a bunker on a course where it's really heavy rough, I am coaching that ball to go in the bunker. And here's the second exception when you're coaching your ball to get in a bunker. When there's a body of water between where you're hitting 
the bunker, and then the green. I'm watching the Honda Classic this weekend, a Jack Nicholas golf course, and most Jack Nicholas golf courses are tough, particularly when he has a championship course. The PGA National Championship Golf Course in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida, has so many watery graves. Sometimes I think the viewing public just likes to watch to see how many of these elite golfers are going to hit it in the water. There are three holes on the back nine, holes 15 through 17, that are so difficult because of the water hazards, they're referred to as the bear trap. And when the wind picks up, some players are just hoping their balls come to rest in a bunker instead of a watery grave. There are multiple emotions that golfers endure when playing. First is the emotion in the pre-shot routine. That's where you settle your nerves and envision your shot. You're starting to calm yourself down. The second is during the swing. It's where you're trying to control your body and your nerves while getting up enough strength and torque to be able to hit the ball where you want it. Then there's the moment of impact. This is the feel that you get when your club head hits the ball after you've gone through the whole torque of the backswing, begin your swing through the ball, and it's that feedback that you get from the ball that typically will tell you this is either going to be good or bad. The next emotion is watching your ball fly. And in that, it's either what you expected or not what you expected. And then while it's in midair, you're doing all kinds of talking to the ball to try and get it to land in a favorable position. And then the last emotion you get is when your ball comes to rest. Is it what I envisioned? And if not, now what do I have to do? And then there could be other emotions depending on how much you let your buddies get into your head or outside factors get into your head. I used to play with this guy who couldn't have people move or walk behind him when he played. We actually played in a pro-am one time together, and he is asking patrons, guests, to move out of his backswing. Now, could you imagine that? You're playing inside the ropes, and you're telling people outside the ropes who paid to be there to move out of your backswing. But this guy's got guts, and he said it, and people actually moved. Now, you'd hear them say a few things when they were moving, but they certainly moved. That's an emotion on how you can control outside stimulus. Like, I can't imagine how these pros play at the WM Open in Phoenix with 20,000 people yelling and screaming, how they could keep their shit together and totally eliminate outside factors just to be thinking about the ball, the swing, and what they have to do to get the ball to do what they want it to do. I find that to be an emotion that's probably the biggest challenge for amateurs. But my experience would tell me the better golfers are great at controlling all their emotions all the way through the swing through impact, through ball going in the air, through ball coming to rest. And the more that they can control their emotions, the more likely their score and disposition improves. Think about it. When your ball just misses the water and lands in a bunker, you feel relieved. 
When you walk up to the bunker and see how close your ball was to landing in the water, you're feeling like, whew, I got away with this. Now, there's a good likelihood you hit a good bunker shot because you're feeling pretty good about yourself. If you can control your mind to accept consequences, you can approach your next shot with enthusiasm. So if you're still feeling badly about the previous shot that you miss hit or hit into a bunker, there's a pretty good chance you're going to be upset with yourself, you're going to punish yourself, and it's going to reflect in your next bunker shot. So I think there's a proven attitude to put you in the best position to play and score your personal best. Don't worry. Be happy. Yeah, so the next time your ball lands in a bunker, feel good that it didn't find the water or the heavy stuff. That is, unless it's buried like a fried egg. And if that's the case, you're fucked. You've been listening to an episode from Tales from the First Tee. I'm your host, Rich Easton, telling tales from beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. Talk to you soon. Thank you.